Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters, welcome back to the podcast. In this episode, I'm re-releasing episode 80, Adapting Conservation to Climate Change at WWF. It's been a while since I've released this episode, and I have a lot more listeners since it was originally released, and I felt the content was too good not to expose to a larger audience. Sean Martin of WWF, who produced the original episode, comes back to share his thoughts on the original episode and what progress has been made since the original episode was released. This was a fantastic episode for me. It took me to Kenya, and I interviewed WWF staff from all over the world. It truly is a behind-the-scenes look at how a large conservation organization tackles the challenges of integrating climate adaptation into their work. Sean joins me for an updated interview at the beginning of the episode, and then he comes back at the end of the original episode, and we talk about what progress they've made. Okay, let's jump into this conversation with Sean. Hey, Adapters, welcome back. I have on Sean Martin of World Wildlife Fund. We are checking back in with Sean to talk about a previously released episode from December 2018 called Adapting Conservation to Climate Change at WWF. Hey, Sean, welcome back to the show. Hi, Doug. It's great to be back. All right. You are an old timer with the podcast. But for those of those people out there who don't know you, and I'm sure there's just very few people like that, could you just what do you do at WWF? You actually have some different roles now than when the last time you came on. Sure. Yeah. So if for those listeners who do know who I am, you can forward 15 seconds for those of you who don't know who I am. I am Sean Martin. I have been the Senior Director for Climate Change Adaptation and Resilience at WWF for the past 11 or 12 years. In the last year or so, I've also become the acting lead for our entire climate change and energy portfolio. So I've been a pretty busy guy. All right. This was a really cool episode, and I wanted to check back in. I re-release episodes on occasion, and I go back through my archive myself, and I'm like, you know what? What would I like to re-release? Because my listener base is, you know, it just it keeps getting bigger. Thank you guys for all being listeners out there. And I thought this would be a good one. And as we re-released this, we went through this process. And Sean, I want you to explain a little bit of it. But we originally got to go to Kenya for this. You took me to Kenya to record a lot of things, um, participants at a workshop there. I don't get to go to Kenya this time around. We are all just sitting pretty Neither here. Neither do I. <laughs> during the pandemic, which is fine. But I wanted to re-release it because I thought it was a really interesting exercise that you did. And we're going to talk a little bit about that now, but you're going to come back on at the end of the episode and we're going to talk about what we heard. But um, could you give a bit more context to what, what we talked about at the original workshop? Sure. I'm really glad you reached out to me to re-release this episode, and I'm glad you thought it was worth a re-release. I was actually listening to your episode with Moira McDonald from the Walton Family Foundation, and she was talking about how the foundation is using sea level rise projections in the Gulf Coast to inform their conservation work in the region. And it made me think of what we were trying to do at WWF in that podcast episode, which is like two years ago now. And then in that episode, you mentioned you had a colleague at WWF that was trying to do similar things. And I said, oh, wow, I think he's talking about me. <laughs> so uh, it's a great time to re-release this episode to keep that theme going. For the last couple of years at WWF, we've been trying to integrate how climate change is affecting our conservation goals and outcomes and what adjustments we need to make to those goals and outcomes or our activities in light of climate change. 
We know that climate change is affecting the environment very rapidly, and some of our goals may be able to be maintained if we do things differently, and other goals we may need to reconsider entirely in light of how climate change is affecting the environment in real time. So uh, that podcast, we were actually documenting the process of what we are calling climate smarting, our conservation strategies. And we went to Kenya with a group of about 30 people from all over the world to look at our conservation strategies, see how climate change was affecting them, and then looking for ways that we could update them in light of climate change impacts. All right. So my own perspective is that I, I thought it was really cool that you invited me to be part of that and we were able to document it through a podcast. And in some ways, it was kind of looking behind the curtain at WWF and the whole notion of conservation, the whole notion of adaptation. And it was uh, fascinating to see what happened in that workshop and very fascinating to just have my one-on-one -on -one conversations. And again, I got to go to Kenya. I talked to a lot of people, but a lot of the conversations were actually recorded even after or before and all times of the day because I'm talking to people in, I think, Madagascar and the Philippines. Yeah. Welcome and to my world. Right. So uh, it's my world now, too, with some of the other interviews I'm doing. But, yeah, it, that was great. That was really interesting. But we're, we're going to have a listen. But before we jump into the, the going back to that episode, it's not as long as it used to be. And what was your thought process for we've cut this down a bit? Right. So it was quite a long episode, I think over two hours. And uh, a lot of the information in there is probably not crucial to your audience at this point. I wanted to have a lot of information in that episode because I wanted WWF listeners to really listen to everything people had to say about climate smarting or conservation strategies. So we've probably taken out about a good 45 minutes or so, so it's much more concise. The listeners will get the essentials of what they need to know of how WWF is approaching this topic, and hopefully they'll learn just as much. Okay, Sean, you are going to come back on at the end of this episode, and we're going to hear from you about all the challenges, but all the progress that's occurred since this episode came out. I'm very interested to hear what's happened, so I'll see you on the other side. Thanks, Doug. We'll touch base at the end of the episode. Hey, Adapters, we are back with a very special episode. I am with Sean Martin, Senior Director for Climate Change Adaptation and Resilience at World Wildlife Fund in Washington, D.C. Hey, Sean. Hey, Doug. Great to be back. Okay, Sean. As you know, this is a very different episode for me. I'm very excited about what we're doing here. This is eight months in the making. It started off in Kenya. I'm very excited to be sharing this with my listeners. And so how did you come up with this idea and how are you going to use this episode? So uh, for me, it actually started before our workshop in Kenya. It's a year in the making for me. I thought, you know, we're, we're really trying to adapt conservation at World Wildlife Fund and we're, you know, trying out some new ways of doing that. And I really wanted to document the process and the learning over time so that uh, WWF staff could learn from it and hopefully your listeners as well. So we're actually producing an audio documentary. Okay, so WWF is a fairly complicated organization. You have offices all over the world, but WWF isn't a single organization. Can you give a little background to help my listeners better understand WWF as they follow the rest of this episode? Sure. WWF is a pretty complicated organization. Many people think we're just one single organization with a headquarters and all of our many offices take direction from that single headquarters. 
but actually we are a federation of 30 or more WWS by now with 100 offices all over the world. And each country has its own conservation strategy. And so when we dive into this episode, your listeners are going to hear from lots of people from our country offices all over the world. And it's, it's good to remember that they each have unique challenges with conservation and climate change in their countries, and they all have different strategies to tackle those challenges. Okay, so let's just do this. In the first part of this episode, we're going to take a world tour to learn how climate change impacts are already affecting WWF's conservation work. Yeah, so I'm really excited about this part of the episode. In the Philippines, we're going to learn how that country and WWF is involved in planning for super typhoons. In Uganda, we'll learn how increased water scarcity is driving conflict between farmers and elephants. And finally, we'll land in Cape Town, South Africa to see how the severe drought there has affected the city and has even made it difficult for WF staff to come to work. Okay, and let me just say really quickly how awesome it was for me even Skyping in with these folks from all over the world. It was just a fantastic opportunity. So let's jump right in and hear from them. Gia Ibai, I had the climate and energy program for WWF Philippines. Okay, so help my listeners visualize the Philippines. What are some of the climate impacts that you have to deal with over there? Okay, so the Philippines is an archipelagic country. We're composed of over 7,600 islands. So we got a lot of typhoons and storms from the Pacific, um, very strong ones. But since we have a lot of islands and we're surrounded by oceans, um, sea level rise is also a big challenge for coastal communities. Okay, so typhoons are something that the Philippines have to think about every year. And this, you have a great story here, and I just want to set up a little bit. You went through this process. It wasn't a scenario plan. It was a vulnerability assessment, right? Um, it was a sort of a combination of both. We did what we called a business risk assessment. And based on that assessment, people make a scenario building exercise. And um, the story I was going to say was that I facilitated a a scenario building exercise for a worst case scenario for the city of Tacloban. So we went through the exercise and part of their story was that by 2023 there will be like a super typhoon that will visit the city and basically devastate it. This scenario building exercise happened just a little over a month before super typhoon Haiyan visited the city. And it's, it's very, up to now I get goosebumps because I see how they actually envisioned that they would be visited by a super typhoon. They just didn't have enough time to really plan and prepare for it. At the time, Haiyan was the strongest typhoon to ever make landfall. It was beyond Category 5. You know, I, I still recall the, the way the scenario building story came out and when we match it with how awesome the typhoon was even the worst case scenario ca cannot compare to what the reality was and especially what happened after i mean you get components of of some of those that are in the story but there's certain things that you never really thought of in terms of what would ha actually happen if a super typhoon visited you my name is Jacob Etunganan. I work as the climate change manager for the WWF Uganda country office. What are the, some of the changes in climate and in weather specifically to Uganda that people there and, and I guess WWF is most concerned about? One of it is um, the prolonged dry spells. 
you realize that still within the parks, the wildlife will require water, especially for the elephants. So with the increasing dry spells, automatically dry water sources within the park, when these surface water sources dry, the elephants have to find a way out of the park. In Queen Elizabeth National Park is where you find the elephants. So with uh, the increasing uh, drought and the rest, the water levels recede down and down. And we've had cases where um, elephants have um, left the park area encroached on community crops. But most interesting is the communities have also in one way or the other encroached the land around the park. Because their land is now dry, there is no water, and the park land seems to be having some moisture uh, because it's naturally covered by trees, so they tend to go and do farming there. So as they plant their crops within the park, automatically the elephants are interested in the bananas they have planted because they feel this is a fruit for us. So what was actually happening? One elephant visited the farm day one, and then simply goes back and tells the rest that there is food somewhere. And the whole week they were visiting this place. And so most of the elephants and elephants always get to eat at night. So once the communities have got, have gone into their houses, they will come into these gardens and destroy almost the whole livelihood of these communities. After community waking up in the morning and finding that the whole garden was destroyed, and they go to the district authorities and tell them, if you do not control these elephants, we're going to kill them. So you typically find that at the end of the day, the impacts of climate change that Uganda is already facing will undo some of our conservation efforts. My name is Kauredo Chilwani, and I am currently the Senior Manager Climate Change Programme in WWF South Africa. What are the changes in climate and weather in South Africa that people are most concerned about? Um, In South Africa, we are mostly concerned about the recent drought that has hit most of our capital cities, which is Cape Town, Etequini, as well as parts of the Eastern Cape province. We even heard about that here in the United States that Cape Town was, there was even a potential date where you guys were going to run out of water. And when you're dealing with a situation where humans aren't even going to have access to water, how does that make your job more challenging when your focus is on wildlife? Our job is, was made more challenging from the basic fact that um, within the area in Cape Town, we saw a lot of people running out of water, um, the city having set up various points where people can come with buckets and containers to collect water. So from the basic human rights side, for us, that was um, something that is very real and serious. And we were also experiencing it through our staff turnout, where you would have a lot of people struggling with water, especially those that are coming from townships. I don't know if you know what townships are mainly people that where you find a lot of black communities staying there and you'll find that they will have challenges coming to work because they didn't have water to really prepare themselves and for the entire families. So that has actually made our work quite difficult. But at the same time, we were also uh, playing a role in terms of working closely with the city to come up with 
measures to help uh, the city cope with the impacts um, that they're currently experiencing um, resulting from water shortages. All right, that was fantastic. I hope everyone learned what WWF offices around the world are going through, what the various climate change impacts that they're dealing with. So Sean, what's next? So next we're off to Nairobi, Kenya to listen in on a three-day workshop that we held in April. You've learned about the climate change impact some of our offices are facing. And what we were doing at the workshop is to look at, to see if our offices are actually addressing those threats in their conservation strategies. And your listeners will find out what we learned there and how we're developing a process to move forward and help offices really get a handle on how they're going to manage these threats going forward. Okay, adapters, pack your bags. We're going to Kenya. I am here with Sean Martin of the World Wildlife Fund. Hey, Sean, how's it going? Hi, Doug. It's going great. So what brings us to Kenya? We're here for a three-day workshop with about 30 people. And what we're going to do is review conservation strategies to see if they make sense in a changing climate. And we're going to make some modifications to those. And then what we're going to do is then is take that learning from this climate smarting process. And we're going to use that information to help inform country governments as they develop their national adaptation plans to make sure that the kinds of things that WWF would like to see in a national adaptation plan are actually there. All right. I want a little bit more history though. Whose idea was it? It was multiple ideas from multiple people converging at the same time. I've been at WWF for 17 years now. About the last 10 of those I've been working on adaptation. It's long been my goal to have WWF move away from adaptation as being a standalone program or initiative into something that's more holistic with the rest of our conservation strategy. So I proposed this idea that we climate smart all of our conservation strategies. My colleague came up with the idea that we should be really surging together as a WF network to influence national adaptation plans. And we decided that those two things would work well together as one single initiative. So you have given me a little bit of a preview and you have your own expectations and we can dig into those a little bit later. But what do you think the expectations of these people that are coming from all these different country offices? And I'll, I'll get some of their own feedback, but I'm just curious here at the beginning, what, what do you think they're expecting? I don't know what they're expecting. I only know what I hope they're expecting. And that is that WWF has decided that it's important to integrate climate change risk management into our conservation strategies. And I'm hoping that people are here to learn more about that so that they'll go home and have the same kind of process with the staff back in their offices. Now, I don't know if that's what people know they signed up for by coming here. Some people have the impression that we're going to come here to talk about adaptation. What are some of the solutions we can adopt to help preserve our conservation strategies as they are. And I'm moving this in an entirely different direction. I want to make sure that we're reviewing our goals and outcomes before we get into adaptation. Some of the goals that we've set for ourselves really need to be rethought when you think about climate change. Are some of the things that we're trying to achieve in the next five, 10 years, are they actually going to be achievable in the long run with climate change. And if they're not, maybe we should rethink those goals. At the end of this workshop, if 
everything just went perfectly with all these different participants, what would that look like to you? I think, and I'm hoping that people are going to be really excited to go home with a new way of thinking about conservation in a changing climate and go home and work with their country office staff to really revise our strategies. If we're not revising our strategies in light of climate change, like Dan Ash said on a previous episode of yours, we're really not doing right by conservation. We can't escape climate change. We can try to slow it down or limit it, but we know there's climate changes baked into the system that we're already going to experience no matter what we do on climate change mitigation. And I don't think our strategies are really embracing that fact as much as they could. At the end of the workshop, I'm hoping that everyone understands that and they'll be motivated to go home and make some change in their own offices. And then we have this other part of the strategy for national adaptation plans. National adaptation plans are a real opportunity for conservation groups like WWF to make sure country governments get it right as they seek to help their nations adapt. And when I say get it right, I mean that we're adapting to climate change in ways that support and do not undermine nature. And in fact, we're helping nature adapt through these national adaptation plans. I think there's a risk that country governments might overlook nature as they try to help the the vulnerable people in their countries. Uh, Of course, we need to help vulnerable people, but we think the best way to do that is by also supporting nature because those provide important ecosystem services for people to adapt to climate change as well as for their everyday livelihoods. You probably have an idealized way of thinking if a country office was doing something really well. (laughs) Are there any countries that you hold up as models that are saying, okay, they are well along in this process because they've worked with you with the WWF adaptation office? Or are people sort of starting off on a level playing field at, at WWF? Our offices vary widely in the adaptation experience and capacity they have in their own offices. Some offices are doing great things, but still need improvement. Others are just starting. And it's a good sign that they're here for this workshop. Was it clear to you what I'm thinking about what this workshop is about? Yes and no. Work out a little vague for me, though, is like you were saying, we're not here at the end of the week to tell you how to do adaptation. It's like to look at your conservation strategy. Yeah. That, to me, okay, where's the adaptation? So that was a little vague for me, if I'm giving you feedback now. So, so a lot of people still think adaptation is about a single project, standalone project that you stick in somewhere in your overall conservation plan. And a lot of people, I think, are going to have expectations of this workshop. Hey, we have forest fires in our country. Tell us what to do. How do we adapt our way out of that? That's not what we're going to talk about here. We're going to talk about you have forest fires. So is a long-term goal of saving that forest even viable with increasing number of forest fires? Yeah, so that gets tricky. It's like, are you just giving that feedback on a good conservation plan and making that link to, like, this is part of that adaptation story? That's it's a little bit tricky. Yep. <laughs> but reviewing your strategies is itself adaptation. We wouldn't be doing this if there wasn't climate change. And what we're doing wrong is that we're not considering climate change at the goal-setting stage of our strategies. We set our goals based on pre-existing biodiversity 
outcomes that we want to see. And then we think we're going to adapt our way somehow to achieve those goals. And not everything is achievable with climate change. Okay, I'm with Sean Martin here on the first day of the event. Hey, Sean, what's going on right now? Well, we are three minutes before starting time, and I'm very happy to see that everyone's on time. Uh, I'm really excited about today. There seems to be a lot of energy in the room. People are talking and excited to be here. We are going to start with a quick icebreaker. Everybody come to the center. We love each other. All right, we're going to do a quick exercise called Answer With Your Feet. So the first question is an easy one. If this is your first time to visit Kenya, move to this side of the room. If you've been to Kenya before or you live here, move to this side of the room. <laughs> Welcome to Kenya. <laughs> Welcome back. All right. Come back to the center. So I just want to go over a few things of what, why we brought all of you here together and what we hope to get out of the meeting. So we brought all of you here together to start forming this community of practice about mainstreaming climate considerations into strategies. And I've collected all the country's strategies that are represented here today, and I've looked at them, and we have not done that as well as we should have. And so we're going to try a few ways to introduce you to how to look at a strategy to tell if it is climate smart enough or not. And we are not here to tell you how to do this, we are going to expose you to some ideas. Collectively, we're going to decide as a community what's the best way for WWF to climate smart its strategies, or you can do whatever you want in your own offices. This is a learning practice. Okay, we're starting. I'm interviewing some folks here, and I'm with... Uh, Philip Diambo from WWF Kenya office. In here? from uh, WWF Mongolia office. First off, since this is the first day, what really are your expectations for this meeting? Yes, for me it is the session on uh, reviewing the strategies submitted the national office strategy. Really, my expectation is that we can make the strategies really be climate smart, uh, incorporating climate risks. Uh, yeah. Okay, so what are your expectations? Yeah, my expectation is really learning because we use in our uh, conservation strategy those words like resilient, climate smart, without uh, much knowing uh, the meaning, these words. Yeah? So I really have to know, uh, have to learn about how to, to make our conservation strategy climate smart. Uh, my name is Sandeep Samling Rai. I'm based in WF Singapore office. So what's your role for this workshop? I'm one of the convener, like Son, and, and also the, the practice expert for climate adaptation work for climate and energy practice. What have you thought of so far? Has it met your expectations? Any surprises? The surprise, what I can say, is that it's good engagement for the participant. 
and I can see a lot of energy in them in terms of discussing the issues. So it is a good sign. Your responsibility with WWF is working on the national adaptation plans across the planet. I guess I didn't quite get is that a country can have a national adaptation plan, but they have to fall under a certain category to do the national adaptation plans that you're helping encourage because they then will be eligible for some of this international funding. Yeah. That's true. The NASA adaptation plan, the terminology, what we say, NAPS, is, is came from the UNFCCC negotiation process, right? And and if you want to access the international funding from like the GCF and others, uh, the NAPS could be one of the prerequisites that each country needs to do. So a few of us have been at WF for a while. Remember John Matthews, and he came up with this way to describe conservation in a changing climate. And our business as usual conservation assumes that the climate is not changing. And there's two ways we we approach conservation assuming a stationary climate. We can restore ecological balance, repair damaged places, or we preserve things that are not yet damaged. And that worked fine as long as the climate wasn't changing. And Chris, is the climate changing? What I hear. I'm not going to stop anytime soon. So what he proposed is climate change is affecting the paradigm of conservation. We can't do this anymore. We have to think about a changing climate and actually facilitating change, helping nature adapt, not trying to keep it the same, because that's impossible. So how did you come to consensus on blue? We ran out of time. <laughs> That's always a good no, I mean, you know, We had a deadline. Yeah. Yeah. Blue work close to our work. Let's go for blue. Okay. So you had a discussion on which one are we going to pick. And that's what consensus building is all about. You get all the ideas on the table, and then you sort it out as a group what you can agree upon. So now we're going to use the same exercise on something that's a little more complicated. So think about this question. What are the essential elements or characteristics of a climate-smart conservation plan? You might have more than one answer to this question, and that's okay. We want lots of ideas. And I want you to write one idea per post-it note, up to three ideas per person. You know, Take a few minutes to do that, and then we'll start snapping. I'll start with this table to present one idea. You just come to the front. We're going to start with Gia. She's going to say what it is, maybe say one sentence about what that means. And anybody else who has the same or similar idea, when she's done speaking, come up and snap. Okay. Gia from the Philippines. Um, so our first element is the uh, identification of climate risks. That's self-explanatory. <laughs> Any snaps? Yeah. Come on up. Nikhil? Okay, so ours is a bit more specific. It's an element of climate risk. It's documenting the current climate threats to all of your systems. Any snaps to that? So it's kind of a subset of this one. It's just more specific, going into more detail. But definitely along the same lines of thinking. Table one, next idea. Addressing the climate risks. So any snaps to addressing 
what you've identified here. Yeah. Snap. If you're snapping, bring it up. There are one, two, three, four, five, six. I wanted to have five or six. Looks like we have them as our starting point. Now we're going to refine these concepts and test them when we start actually looking at our conservation strategies. And then by the end of the workshop, we'll have a refined list that we can present to the entire network of what this group has come up with on what we want to see as a climate-informed conservation strategy. Sean is leading okay, them in something weird. Okay. Another one for the legs. Do this. You do a tree pose or grab your foot and pull it up. So your, your knees are together. Not out here. Try to get your knees as close as possible. This is hard. And if you're really good, you can grab behind your back. <laughs> Do that. This next section is about buzzwords. Resilience is everywhere in our strategy. We're going to make sure it means something. So here's where conservationists kind of have trouble with this concept of resilience. We're thinking that when you withstand and recover from shocks and disturbances, we're thinking about returning back to what it used to be. It's just continuing on as we had been in the past. We have all these words in conservation that really indicate we are managing for persistence, not change. All of our favorites, conserve, protect, remain, restore, return, fix, permanent, long-term, sustainable, sustainability. When you see those words in the strategy, it's a red flag. Can we really do that? Or do we have to manage for change, not persistence? Any questions? Comments? It's just to get your brain working. You don't have to agree with this, but eventually you will. <laughs> As we go through the exercises, you will see. We're going to apply some of these ideas and these ideas to our strategies. We'll see. So I'm walking around as they're reviewing the conservation strategies again, and they'll read a country conservation strategy, then everyone will go around and give some feedback. So then on 3.1, I really like the way that you had science-based climate data uh, for the connectivity. That was great. And so presumably the corridors may even be in different places to what you would have done without climate change. And there, I like the refugia, which presumably are science-based. So, so that's, that's nice that you've got refugia in there. That's very nice. So I like the point that you made. Yes, because it's easy for me to see that uh, we are improving resilience of what? Yes. I agree with what he said about uh, using the, the wording of the stop, for example, 3.2 to stop soil degradation, deforestation, biodiversity loss. Um, like Sean has said, climate is an ever-changing uh, process, so stopping could be something very ambitious. So perhaps we can, by acknowledging climate is a threat to this target, we can we can use the word. I will suggest the word minimizing or managing. Just looking around the room, there's people from all over the planet here coming together. I think that's the strength of this approach. WWF should be proud. We've got people from Central America, Asia, all coming up with conservation strategies, all trying to come up with adaptation strategies. I am Maggie Kinnaird, and I am the wildlife practice leader for WWF International. So what do you think of the workshop so far? Wow, the workshop has been great. 
For me, it's been especially important going through the various countries' strategies and trying to see where climate should be placed in the strategies, where it's missing, or where people have implied that it's there and, and the consideration may not be there. Because last year, the wildlife practice developed their strategy. And in going through it, we withdrew some of these comments that are being placed in now because we assumed that climate was ever present in people's minds and that we taught when we talked about resilient ecosystems that people would be thinking about the effects of climate change. I'm learning that that's not always true. And when you're trying to change people's approaches and especially, you know, just introducing something new to how we go about doing things, those statements might need to be in there. Uh, so I'm going back to our strategy to look at it with a, a bit of a different, a different look to it. I'm Mariana Chavez from WWF Mexico office. I'm the monitor and evaluation coordinator. What are your ex expectations for this workshop? To be honest, to understand a bit more about adaptation and climate change because it my, it's not my main area of work. You know, just a little bit of a Mexican flavor. If you had to describe, okay, what are you really protecting in Mexico? And I know you could talk all day on that. So our main lines of work are uh, the monarch butterfly migratory route and then the hibernation site. Some work with the coral reefs in the Yucatan Peninsula. We have a big ocean program, which includes whales, sharks, turtles, and all the communities that depend on tourism with those species for their income. So we spent the bulk of the day in these groups where you've gone through sort of page by page. Is there any specific criticism against your Mexican plan that stood out or was it all just positive? No, no. <laughs> it definitely needs a lot of work. It's it's doing better because we've had a couple of exercises in our own office that have we have adapted a bit this strategy, but there's definitely a lot of uh, positive comments we've received about it. Now, what about the makeup of the workshop itself? I mean, do you like the structure that Sean has set up? Probably been to a, a bunch of workshops, a bunch of meetings. Yeah. I guess, what are the positives and negatives? And you can say something negative. Sean is open to it. He's open to it. We, this will be a boring podcast. Oh, it was really great. Anything that's not working or what's working? Um, I've actually really enjoyed the dynamic of the workshop. I've been to, through a lot of them and most of them are really long and you get lost in the middle of them. So he's very well at tracking time and keeping people on the subject you're supposed to review. And it helps out uh, the big breaks you get because you're able to attend whatever is going to your off in your office that's not going to stop because you're here. How do you feel about the fried gizzards at the coffee break? I can, yeah, that, that was really weird. I can't have salty things with my coffee breaks. So weird. And, oh, please, coffee was a terrible downside of things. I can't have instant coffee. Right, right. Yeah, that was, that was a really bad point. Yeah, Sean, please take care of coffee. Hi, everybody. Good morning. So I'm Mariana Chavez. I'm from the Mexico office. And Ninel Escobar is our adaptation climate expert. But she couldn't be here, so she sent me instead. So this is our journey, which Ninel describes as definitely not a walk in the park. So basically, our conservation strategy are these four areas, and we have ten outcomes, eight, nine, and seven, which is a lot. So uh, the process we did, as I mentioned, we have goals and we have outcomes for each theme. And what we did was we sat down, uh, Ninel and I, with uh, with um, 
the gold coordinator, or basically the expert on that uh, theme, we sat down with them and we did this thing. So we decided we were going to do comments to the goals, and then we went into more detail at an outcome level. And we asked these questions. So the first one was uh, to identify or make sure we have a clear conservation or well-being target. This helps prioritize in case of extreme events. So for example, if you have, for your outcome, a protected area and a species, and in the future the species moves out of the protected area, you need to be very clear which is your priority, the protected area or the species. And it may change. In some cases it's going to be the area, in some cases the species. But if you don't have that clear, you can plan in the future what your, your strategy is we're going to be. Uh, we decided a climate risk for each one. I'm going to show you an example in the next slide. And then implications for the target about this climate uh, risk, and then ways to tackle this climate risk for, for our target. This was just a casual sit-down with the expert. We didn't want them to think it was a very long planning process again. So we just asked them, what is your idea of the goal? What do you think climate change is going to affect it? So just talk to me about it. So this example is a monarch butterfly, so I was telling you about yesterday. So our expert just started describing all the events they've been having and the impacts that, that has had in the butterfly. So 22,000 trees fell down in 2016. Uh, how many butterflies died, how tourism is impacting uh, the butterflies. So if because of climate change, there, there's a warmer winter in North America. The butterfly comes down later and then uh, coincides with the tourists coming in. So it's a stressful moment for them. But because the tourists coming in, it's already written down the date they're allowed to go in, you can change it. So one of the problems is that they are going in at the same time, and that's going to be a risk for us. So we, with all the description they made, we set implications for the conservation targets. So, for example, if your conservation targets are the community, because they live or their income is based on the tourism, one of the impacts you might want to consider is if the tourism is not coming in anymore, those communities are not going to have an income. Uh, or if the butterfly is really stressed because of a weather or a very big storm, you're going to have a lot of butterflies dying. Or if they move outside of the protected area, your target is going to be affected as well. You need to decide which target you're going to stick with. And then finally, you uh, talk to them, or they talk to you, about ways to tackle those things. So they say we need to, for example, uh, shift or make flexible the tourism dates so they can come in once the butterflies are already settled down, uh, we need to start monitoring, we're actually already doing this, so monitoring uh, where the butterfly is moving outside of protected areas and start to uh, plant trees in those areas to make sure it's a, a good zone for them to move. Questions? So yeah. it's not you that provided comments, you sat down at the table. Yes, so the team is uh, the climate expert, uh, in my case uh, me for monitor because the plan is my baby, <laughs> and then the expert on the subject. So it's just a casual talk. And it took about one hour, you said? Yeah, it's, it's about an hour with them. And it's very useful to mention this to them, because they're very busy all the time. They are done with all the strategic planning or a long process, so it's just one hour of their time. I'm Mariette Stevens from the Dutch office in the Netherlands.
Okay, so what do you do there in that office? I'm the client resilience officer. I advise my colleagues on how to integrate climate adaptation into their conservation plans. Did you have expectations heading into this meeting before you actually arrived here? We've been we're on day two now, but did you have expectations? Were they low? Were they high expectations? Because it's a little bit of an unusual meeting. Well, first of all, I really was looking forward to meeting some of my colleagues that I'm um, I speak on the phone or I'm on email, but I don't travel a lot. So uh, that was especially my colleagues from Mongolia, Malaysia, Indonesia, Russia. It was uh, really heartwarming. I had high expectation of the workshop, but I have been to Sean's workshops on adaptation before, and it was really good. And especially the first day was really very good. I think the exercise where we try to come up without any background information, where we try to come up with what uh, do we think uh, is climate smart conservation. And what you saw that people came up with all the elements that were needed uh, before even told so. So, so we have, we have to trust more on our own knowledge. So it's, it's a very good way of affirming what you already know and expect. I guess, did you have the chance to give feedback if things needed to change? Yeah, I've already had the experience of giving feedback to, uh, on some of these plans. And what you see in, in general, while you on, on a level of advisors can have very good and serious discussions, and you try to write up things, but very often what happens on the management level, it's, it's got, it, it's disappears. Um, and you have worked on it for quite some time, so that can be very disappointing. You, you have a few things to say about the use of science that, that yeah. Well, we, we, we started the climate smarting process by a decision of the head of conservation to look into the climate impacts for all our uh, uh, Dutch uh, priority regions. There are 13 um, terrestrial regions we focus on. And we had an interesting researcher and he went ahead and did his research. And there was a complete mismatch between our expectations and what people needed on on the ground and what he came up with. What he came up with, even our science advisor and me, who has seen some climate scenarios, found it so hard to understand. And my conservation colleagues could not comprehend it at all. So we sat down with them for three hours and talked them through. But what it did is it put people off. They got scared. I don't understand this. I need to understand this. So instead of engaging them, we sort of push them away with this scientific information. So while it can be really good if you already know what you want to know and you have really good extensive conversations with the scientists, it won't really help the implementation of climate adaptation on the ground in the first phase. And I think the approach that the Mexican office has taken just to sit down with people, not necessarily necessarily talk about climate change, but what do you see happening? What is your experience? That can be really empowering and helping people to see. Any final thoughts about we have one more day tomorrow or things that you might take back to the office after you, you return to the Netherlands? Yeah, I, I have, I have so many ideas. My head is, is a bit, <laughs> is a bit exploding at the moment, but certainly I will take away the, the Mexican approach just to sit down with the experts and ask them what, what they see happening and, and involve them and engagement and them empower them. Any thoughts for Sean? Do you want to talk directly to Sean? What do you have to say to him about this workshop or what they should be doing after this workshop? More stretching. <laughs> <laughs> Good, we'll end it there.
All right, I'm here with Nikhil Advani on the second day. I want you to spring some dirt, and since this is audio, you can just wink once for yes, two for no. <laughs> no, it's been great so far. Um, for me, one of the nicest things with these meetings is these are all colleagues that I've worked with before. A bunch of them I've funded projects in their countries within the last year. So it's really a nice way to catch up with people. So tell me about the first day. Meet your expectations, anything missing? Yeah, I thought it was good. We started to do a, a bit of a deep dive into some of the strategies, did an overview of the whole climate smarting process and what kinds of things to look for, and a lot of nice sort of interactive activities. Why do you see value in the whole process? Well, the idea is that all officers are mainstreaming climate adaptation into what they're doing. And up until now, I feel like it's the kind of thing that people just paid lip service to. They'll write climate smart here and there in their strategy, and they'll claim that they're adapting to climate change. And that's not the reality. So I think this is a good way to sort of develop a more coherent approach to it. But, but the next step to me, even this is, is, a, is an intermediate step. What really needs to happen after this is for all the different countries and all their strategies, we need to start identifying one or a few projects where we can really integrate climate change adaptation. So you have quite a few projects that take you out in the field yourself. Maybe give an example of that. I think you work with elephants. What, what are those projects? Yeah, a lot of my species work is actually behind a desk and working with experts, not necessarily interacting with the species. But yeah, a lot of my work is getting data on how communities are being impacted by climate change. So next week I head out to Madagascar and I'm doing a training for Peace Corps volunteers. So we work with the Peace Corps in over 10 countries and the volunteers are collecting data for us on how the communities they live in are being impacted by climate change. And then we're working with them to develop and implement projects that help those communities adapt to climate change. Okay, so you're collecting some data, and then you go to that process of actually helping them implement it. But how does that, what you're doing, especially with the data, plug into a country office adaptation plan? Does your work fit seamlessly into that process? Yeah, great question. It should. And up until now, you know, in all the countries we work in, we've had more engagement with the WWF office in some countries than in others. And Mexico is a great example. In Mexico, the WWF office, Peace Corps, and CONAM, which is the Mexican National Park Authority, all three are working together very closely. And Climate Crowd, which is a project I'm talking about, is one of the, the projects that they work on. You know, ideally, the data that we're collecting in all these countries will inform the, the strategy for that country office. It's the last day of the workshop on Friday here, and so everyone is sitting around tables and they're having discussions based on some questions that Sean has put forward to them. And I want to share those questions really quickly so you have some context of these conversations that are happening. Sean asked them to answer these questions. Who in your office will be the person responsible for rolling out the climate review? Two people, adaptation if available, and another, who should they be? The second question is, what form of documentation do you think would be appropriate? Third question, what time frame do you think it's realistic to go through the review and produce documentation? Can this be accomplished in the next six months, next year, longer? Fourth question, who in your office will drive the national adaptation process? How will they be involved in the climate review to ensure learning is passed on? And finally, what challenges might you encounter? How can you overcome these? What are your capacity needs? Those are a lot of big questions that they're answering. And so I'm looking out at these different tables and all these people from these different countries are trying to answer those questions and trying to figure out how their offices are going 
to work on these issues. All right, I'm going to go back around and start listening in a bit more. Definitely my lesson is, and that's also what stated here, don't try to do this on your own. Try to involve somebody, hopefully for your management team or another colleague, because you need the support to do this. How you frame it is also really important. Yeah. Yeah. So if you just frame it as we need to mainstream climate change, they're just going to see it as, well, that's your work. But if you frame it in the context of this is a risk to you achieving objectives or goals for your strategies, it will be easier to bring people on board. Yeah, exactly. Do you think this process is worth an ongoing dialogue with the same people in these rooms to come back on an annual basis every two years? Uh, yeah, that's sort of our plan, and we don't want to keep it limited to the 16 countries that are represented here. We actually want to bring in more WF countries. We have over 100 offices, and eventually everyone needs to go through a process like this. So we hope in the future our meetings will continue to grow and we continue to learn from one another. But yes, the idea is over the next few years through 2020 that we'll be rolling this out across our entire network. Gavin Jolles, Senior Marine Conservation Officer for Climate Change and Marine Turtles for WWF Malaysia. What did you think of the workshop? I I thought it was wonderful for myself because I'm trained for climate change multi-assessment and this workshop provided us tools on a way to make our strategies much more focus on climate change impacts. What did you think of the workshop structure in regards to how it was managed and what the activities that you did? I thought it was really fun. I thought Sean, uh, well, other workshops that I've been to is very, very detailed, you know, really going to the nitty gritty of certain strategies. Um, but for this particular workshop, it's fun. That's how, how the facilitators actually allow you to, um, achieve certain objectives in the workshop but done in a very fun way aside from you know having able to comment other strategies of other countries which you actually learn from other countries uh, you also get feedbacks from them about your particular strategy so from that particular platform it actually enables me to hey these are things that i need to go back and learn about it and then also hey i also learn from other uh, countries so i like it a lot for this particular structure Hey Adapters, we are back from our trip to Kenya and I'm back here with Sean Martin. And first off, I just want to give my observations about that workshop. I feel really lucky that I got to go there in person and talk to all these folks and witness what they were doing. Some takeaways from the workshop for me is that I just thought there was a lot of positive energy. I've been to plenty of workshops where people are checking out halfway through the workshop. I think a lot of the WWF staff were curious on what was going to happen at this workshop and I got to interview them at the beginning, but the, I think their enthusiasm maintained throughout the, the entire workshop. And actually adapting conservation, it's not easy. There's not a lot of guidance on that. And I think that the people participating in this workshop, I think at the end of it really felt they had some practical advice that came out of it. I think they really liked the structure that you set up for it, that independent of the, the content is just how you kept people engaged. I thought it was very innovative. And so I, well done, Sean. And I'm curious your thoughts on what happened at that workshop. Yeah, going back and listening to some of the interviews you did, I, I did notice a lot of people were seemed, seeming to have a good time. And uh, you know, I've been to my fair share of boring workshops. And I, I just noticed that if... You know, people aren't engaged in having fun at workshops. 
they're not motivated to go back and move forward. So I worked very long and hard to make sure that, you know, we used long breaks and had toys at their tables. And most, you know, we had very few presentations. A lot of it was interactive discussion. And that's all by design to make sure that people are enthused and motivated and they, you know, went home and tried out the process. I'm also was really pleased with how we came up with some six essential elements of climate smart conservation and how we're employing those in our, our strategies now. Okay, Sean. So we had the opportunity to go back a couple months later after the workshop and check in with some of the participants and seeing how their journey is progressing. So what's going on with that? Yeah. So first we're going to hear from Melissa DeCock from WWF Norway. Uh, she gave a presentation to the community on a Skype call and you'll learn about how the process went in WF Norway, and then you'll hear some of our staff asking questions. And then we'll hear from Ninel Escobar Montesinos and Mariana Chavez from WF Mexico to talk about how things have been going there. Okay, let's dive right in. I'll, I'll be fairly quick. I've only got three or four slides to talk through. I'll get to, to what, what happened during that process, but it was a very um, interactive process where um, a lot of people asked a lot of questions, which was very useful. I encountered a couple of challenges in the discussion. The first one was that some people thought that going through the strategy and strategic objectives just to change the word was just semantics. You know, what difference does it make if we, we change the wording? And I had a, a, a long discussion with them as to how the wordsmithing was actually just a way of creating awareness and getting us to think outside of our normal, straightforward conservation work. You know, when we're writing goals and strategies, we just fall into the habit of using conserve, preserve, secure, and that the wordsmithing was really just to make us think a bit more about what it is we actually were trying to do with the climate lens on it. The other one that I found, which was I, I was a little surprised at, was people seeing adaptation as giving up on mitigation. That they thought it, you know, if we're still going to do mitigation and then we do adaptation, isn't that giving up on, on the mitigation battle? And it's, it's really a, an ongoing discussion to make people understand that even if we stop all emissions today, climate change is still going to happen and we're still going to have to adapt we're already having to adapt now. So we're going to have to adapt in future. And it's just, it's just really about having ongoing discussions with people and saying, we're not giving up on mitigation. It's not an either or, we have to do both. The other issue was the project-based versus the mainstreaming. A lot of people uh, seem to want to just leap into pro actual standalone projects rather than thinking about how they need to integrate climate change into their existing work. So that's also a, an ongoing challenge that we, we, we have to tackle. So what I've discovered, and, and I think most people will, un, will know these lessons, is that we can't assume that everyone gets the need for adaptation. You know, thankfully, there's been a, a lot of publicity of late about how adaptation has to happen, but people still don't really think about adaptation in their day-to-day -day work. So providing the rationale for it, talking them through why, why it's not giving up on mitigation, it's really an ongoing task. You can't assume that you can do one or two discussions and everyone's just going to do what we think needs to be done. Also in terms of the wordsmithing, we need to show the clear path from wordsmithing the strategy to actual implementation 
of a climate smart strategy. That it's not just about doing the plan, putting it on the shelf and continuing business as usual. It's actually about walking the talk. And then the last uh, sort of lesson was that, again, it's, it's not a once off. You've got to provide that ongoing support. You've got to provide ongoing reminders about integrating adaptation. And that hopefully at some point down the line, everybody is going to get it and do it. But I think, you know, at one point we sort of hoped that we wouldn't have to have an adaptation focal point to promote the ongoing integration. But it looks like this position will be needed for a while because otherwise people just forget about it and get on with their usual work. Thank you. That was it. Thank you, Melissa. So let's start with John. Okay. Thank you very much, Melissa. It's John Morrison. I had a question. When you get to the climate risk, looking at climate risks, will you be looking at the range of uncertainty that the various climate models, the GCMs are going to show? And are you going to be using scenario planning? Those are my two questions. Thank you. The initial broad brush stroke that I envision will be a lot more superficial than that. It won't be, you know, the climate risks for predators are their prey will move north and they will struggle to find food unless they move north but they can't move north because of habitat or something like that we're not really going to go into the are there going to be more hot days or less hot days or more wet days or things like that but just a sort of very broad brush what, what are the risks to our particular targets down the line certainly i would very be very keen to get into scenario planning i think that's a really important and useful tool in, in, in climate change. But for this first broad brushstroke approach that I hope to have done by June next year, in fact, by February next year, it's just going to be very sort of top level stuff. Great. Thank you. And we'll take a question from Hakelo and then we'll move on to Gia. Uh, thanks, Martin. Hello, everyone. My question is around the challenges that you highlight with the last point where you're saying project-based versus mainstreaming. And I didn't quite hear your views on that because I'm asking this since it talks to basically our approach from the South African side where we are saying currently let's focus a lot on projects on the ground as opposed to focusing most of our energy on the mainstreaming or bringing in the climate risks into our, str our conservation strategies? Okay, thanks, Ha. My personal view is that as a first step, we should focus on making sure our existing conservation strategy is climate smart, which means we need to mainstream climate into all our existing work, like the Keta program that Joe and Nelly are working on you need to think about how climate's going to affect those communities and wildlife because it doesn't matter how much illegal wildlife trade you stop. If, you know, the river's going to stop flowing, then the wildlife's going to go away. We take a huge risk on investment and on achieving our stated goals if we don't mainstream climate into our existing conservation strategies. But then on the other hand, there are a lot of funds for standalone adaptation work. So I think if we have the capacity, we should certainly do that work because that shows proof of concept to the disbelievers about adaptation. It helps us work with governments. It helps us secure livelihoods for communities and you know, improve resilience for ecosystems. But we should never sacrifice mainstreaming for doing projects. We, we have to make sure 
that our conservation strategies are, are climate smart in order to achieve our, our, our office goals. And then we can also do projects, is my personal opinion. No, that's it. That's appreciated. It's a good one. Thanks for, for that response. Thank you, Melissa. That was great. And thank you for the good discussions. This is exactly the kind of discussions we want to have in this community of practice. Hi, this is Ninel Escobar. I'm a, the Climate Change Coordinator at WWF Mexico. Hi, I'm Mariana Chavez, and I'm the, the M&E Coordinator. Okay, Ninel, I'm curious, and we've talked to other countries that are going through this process, and most of the time the example is that maybe there's a culture of people just to want to do this new thing. Uh, they already are doing what they're doing, and why do they need to do adaptation? And what I'm talking about is this climate smart work that offers these new ways of doing things, but has anyone ever sort of asked you something that you're like, well, I'm not quite sure? I don't remember at the moment <laughs> that, that kind of situations. The first thing I notice with, with the technical staff, uh, when we try to introduce these concepts and to try to formalize the thinking about climate change, is that they have a lot of taboos or prejudice about climate change. So the, the thing about uncertainty, the thing about information, the thing about uh, it is not important enough to pay attention uh, to, and the last, which is very present, is I don't have enough time to take care of this. <laughs> But I, I think we, with, with a lot of effort and with a lot of time, we work with each of these barriers to start like thinking about climate change in a more open and, and open way. But we need to systematize the way we think about that. Mariana, as an observer of this process that Ninel's doing, can you offer your own insight to how this has unfolded? Has there been kind of any pushback? Yeah, sure. And yeah, definitely Ninel is leading this as the expert uh, here at the office, and I'm more of uh, helping when it's needed. The interesting thing for me is that I'm, I'm more in touch with the people on the ground with conservation area, and I can see they they take climate change into account because they see it every day and it's events they are constantly having to deal with, but they don't necessarily are making the link between that and including it on the strategic plan. And you know, since you missed the Nairobi workshop, it was a really great meeting and Mariana really enjoyed the hot chicken gizzards that they served during morning <laughs> coffee. That was <laughs> such a That's great... That's what I heard. <laughs> good coffee treat. All right. Seriously, though, uh, Ninel, uh, and this is for both of you, though. So what has happened in Mexico since the workshop? Well, we did it very well until <laughs> until to deliver Nairobi's material. Uh, but after that, it is like with any deadline that people rest after that. So we noticed that in our next conservation staff uh, meeting, like realizing that people are not showing a lot of progress on on working with the strategic planning and also like working on identifying like specific activities related to climate adaptation. Yeah. And so, so just to give you an example, Doug, of what, what happened about a month ago or a little less, we had a, a meeting with all our conservation staff for each area to present their annual work plans. And when one of the areas started to present their work plan, he, he started saying a lot of things that are not climate smart or using the words we're not supposed to use. And you can imagine Ninel's eyebrows just I getting higher and higher and higher. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we had that bit of a reality check where we were not sure if people were 
if they're just not remembering what we mentioned before, or maybe they're just using a, a older version of the strategy. Yeah, we talked about it, and Inel had a this this good idea to to address our CEO and and get him to talk to the staff and and tell them how important this is. So we're it's not only us to pushing them to do something that they don't see the point for now. Um, but it's also uh, our CEO coming from the top saying, well, this is important because this will help us get to somewhere in the future. And also, we noticed that that some of the staff it still thinks that that climate smarting work is my work and not <laughs> their responsibility. So we have to work a lot with that idea, too, because it is easy. And, and, and I think it happens with many with many topics. I mean, there's an expert of that topic. And why, why do I have to bother to start looking for information, understanding? And I try to be very clear on that, uh, that our role is a supportive role and a real climate smart organization. It is not made up by a single person that knows everything and do the whole job. It is more like about building capacities uh, along the whole staff and they will be able to manage and to, to respond for climate change risk in their daily work because I'm not the the one who is doing the the most important conservation work in in the office. So we we are now like thinking about how to deal with those uh, barriers and we have come up with some strategies to do that. In that situation where someone says, "Oh, well this is your role and responsibility." And I mean, could you get, kind of dig in maybe to a specific example with someone? Yes, I think this has to has to do a lot also with the barriers we mentioned at the beginning. I mean, uh, when you start like talk with people uh, in terms of like make them realize that climate smart approach is not very sophisticated. That you know you don't need to have a PhD. You don't need to read like fifteen papers. You don't need to. I mean, it's more like a. Uh, a thing of attitude and taking the right approach because this is the barrier they have. Like, no, I'm not. I'm never going to be as expert as you because I have not invested six years on knowing all these issues. And and I think the first thing to say is that it's easy. It's an easy thing, and you are perfectly able to do that within a, within a two months, within six months. You have to do a lot of effort, but it is not like a rocket science thing. So. Yeah, maybe there's a wrong uh, interpretation of what we are expecting them to do. Uh, one important step we are working with Mariana, and I think it's very valuable for uh, valuable for me to having her in the in in the team, is that I I'm very familiar with with the concepts and with the topics, mm -hmm. and for me it's like, come on, why won't you understand? <laughs> <laughs> and Mariana told me, no, it's not that easy. Perhaps we can we have to frame this this way or this way. And for me, I mean, I I do not consider myself an expert, but I'm knowledgeable about the topic. So for me now at at this point, it's difficult to see why they don't get the information. So. Mariana is helping a lot with that and to try to make things even simpler. I mean, if we want to be a leaders in conservation, we need to integrate climate change. It's about leadership as an organization and, and as a technical staff. This is why we're a very good team. We have the same struggles. <laughs> so, Sean, we just heard from WWF offices on what they have done since the workshop in Nairobi. What are your main takeaways from what we heard? Well, first of all, after listening to these four women, I am incredibly honored to have the opportunity to work with them, and I'm really proud of what they're doing. 
Saving nature has never been easy and climate change is making it that much more difficult. We've heard some of the challenges they're facing in getting some of their colleagues on board, but they're not giving up. Shifting the paradigm of how we approach conservation is an enormous task. And what's happening in some of the offices really gives me hope that WWF is moving in the right direction. So are there any common themes that emerge from these follow-up discussions that make you want to make some revisions to the process WWF is developing? Sure. The one obstacle everyone ran into was using the red flag words, words like preserve, protect, conserve, as a way to identify where our work is at the greatest risk to climate change. And we really wanted this to be a fairly simple exercise as a way to get people to question the viability of their conservation goals and to rethink how they might make their goals more open-ended and flexible. But a lot of people seem to think this was just a rather pointless exercise in semantics. So we're going to have to make some changes there to make sure that people understand why we're doing all this in the first place. But there's some other takeaways as well. I think we learned just how crucial support is from leadership. Without some kind of mandate from the top, this work is really hard to sustain. And we also heard the importance of not doing this alone. Almost all of our offices have just one single adaptation officer to try to get everyone else on board. And I think one of the reasons why Mexico has been so successful is because they have a partnership. Ninel and Mariana are working together and supporting each other and learning from one another. I think that's really important. And finally, we heard from many of our staff how much they appreciated the approach WWF Mexico is taking. They didn't do long planning workshops. They didn't use a lot of heavy science up front. They just had simple one-hour conversations with their colleagues to talk about what they're already seeing in their work and how climate changes are affecting it. So putting the conservation experts in the driver's seat and empowering them to use the knowledge they already have, I think, is a really powerful way to get people started down this path. That's great. This whole process has been great. I, it, it's been an honor for me to be part of it. But what's next? So we're going to take all this learning, and I'm currently writing some guidance for our office to use. And we're going to keep learning from each other as we move forward. We're going to have regular calls, like you heard from Melissa and our colleagues earlier. And we're going to have regular check-ins to strengthen our community of practice. And finally, we really need to focus on what's happening with the national adaptation plans. Depending on how countries help their people adapt to climate change, NAPS could become yet another threat to conservation. And by working with governments in the adaptation planning process, we're really hoping to create new opportunities for nature. Okay, Sean. So the journey of this podcast is almost over. So any last final thoughts? Well, the journey of the podcast is almost over, but the adaptation journey never ends. I really hope your listeners, whether they're working in conservation like me or in urban planning or at some company or really in any field, enjoyed this episode and taken away some ideas they can use in their own work. And I really hope they'll share their experiences with you and your audience. The only way we're going to adapt is to get out there and try stuff, learn from our successes and our mistakes, and share what we learned with others. And that's really what motivated me to do this episode. Hey, Adapters, we are back. And as promised, Sean has returned for the end of this episode. And we're going to touch base. And I want to hear Sean's thoughts on, again, the challenges and the progress since we originally release this episode. Hey, Sean. So tell us what's going on now. Yeah, thanks. Um, I'm glad to give everybody an update. As with many of these things, it's often two step forward, one step back. Uh, it was really interesting going back and reviewing the episode. One of the things that struck me was the people who have left WWF in the two years since we recorded that hmm. episode. 
you know, so we made a lot of progress in those offices. Then people, for various reasons, left the organization. And sometimes they've been replaced. Sometimes uh, they haven't. And so some some momentum has been stopped because of that. And then, of course, there's so many things that have happened outside of WWF that have really presented challenges for everyone, like COVID. Uh, you know, we were traveling a lot to help our offices further the progress, and now that stopped. And we're all just kind of rethinking our work and what it means and the, what we really need to do to keep going and making progress in a COVID-challenged world. But in spite of all of that, there's been quite some progress, and I'm really pleased. Uh, I did get a chance to visit our Vietnam office before COVID happened. And in spite of losing Kate Tepperman, who was at the workshop, they have maintained progress and they are going full force and in integrating climate change into their conservation strategies. Uh, and in the U.S., our top leadership has really embraced this concept and we're looking to up our game in our work around the world and integrating climate risk management into all of our strategies has really become an essential part of what we're doing. I've just read our Arctic strategy, and it is really forward-looking, really embracing the idea that change is so rapid and just inevitable in the Arctic that we really need to rethink the conservation paradigm there. What does it mean to conserve the Arctic when things are changing so fast and you can't put the Arctic back the way it used to be? Well, I just want to give you some feedback. When the episode came out, you know, especially soon after, people really enjoyed the episode. And I'm not sure how you necessarily interpreted it, but people really appreciated the behind the scenes aspect of what we were doing with that episode because other conservation groups are struggling with, you know, what does it mean to be doing adaptation? And I, yeah, it was just <laughs> WWF, you know, this world renowned organization sharing that journey. And so it, it was, I think, really appreciated by a lot of people. And re-releasing it, I hope more people can learn from your experiences. Thanks, Doug. That's really great to hear. And it was exactly my purpose. I'm a big uh, believer in learning by trial and error and sharing that learning with others. We're all making this up as we go along, essentially. And we're not going to really make progress unless we're open and honest about not only the progress that we have, but also some of the challenges. So it's really good to hear that the episode was well-received. Okay, Sean, that is a wrap for the episode. Again, this is great. I really enjoyed the whole process, and I'm sure we'll have you on again soon. Thank you, Doug. I'm really looking forward to coming back. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Sean for sponsoring the original episode and for coming back on to walk us through the progress that has been made. I hope you can learn from the experiences at WWF. Institutionalizing adaptation is no small task, and many groups and businesses are still struggling with these challenges. Reach out directly to Sean if you want to learn more. Okay, upcoming episodes. I'll be talking to Dr. Maxine Burkett at the University of Hawaii on climate law and climate justice. Jesse Keenan returns to talk about some research he's done on how climate change will radically alter the 30-year mortgage. And I'll also be releasing the first of the three-part series on coastal adaptation I'm doing with the trustees of Massachusetts. Some great material is on the way. I want to mention the work I'm doing with Simpatico Studios. I'm hosting live talk shows on the Climate Adaptation channel on Simpatico TV. Right now, we're still recording pilots. I've recently surpassed my 70th episode. I am talking with climate experts from around the world. It's not just adaptation, renewable energy. Talk people from Asia, 
Africa, Europe. It really has been exciting to meet all these people and have conversations about the really great work that they're doing. And so if you don't think you'd be interested in being a guest yourself, if you're not in the adaptation space, well, then think about coming and watching an episode. You can log in free. All you have to do is give your name and email and allow you to come behind the firewall at simpatico.com. And that's C-I-M-P-A-T-I-C-O.com. It's really cool. It's this new platform. I am a partner slash host for it. And we are just expanding. We're trying to bring people like you into this space to learn, but also hopefully that you're going to be able to share some information. So definitely check it out. Links are in my show notes. Now, if you're interested in highlighting your own adaptation work and want to consider using a podcast via America Daps, reach out. I work with many partners, as you heard, WWF, Harvard, MIT, UCLA. Maybe you want to tell your story via podcast. So let's partner. I also do presentations to classes, keto presentations at conferences. And I know we're taking a break from those at the moment. But please do reach out. Maybe there's a positive adaptation message that you want to get out there. Okay, some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but just search for America Adapts and ask to join and I'll prove you right away. We have some nice conversations there. I kind of let my hair down and share some information that way. And so definitely check it out. And on that note, I love hearing from you once a week, two, twice a week, whatever it is. I hear from my listeners and they tell me how they found the podcast, episodes that they've enjoyed. And mainly I love hearing what space you're in. You know, even if you're not in the adaptation space, tell me, why do you listen to the podcast? And if you are, that is valuable information for me too. Are you working for local government? Are you working for a nonprofit organization? Reach out. Tell me your story. I'd love to hear from you. Send me an email, americaadapts at gmail.com. And don't forget to check out the website, americaadapts.org. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.